for being with us to preach the Word of God. Good morning. It is a privilege to be with you all. And it was, I have to say, very moving uh, the circumstances of uh, Wes's willingness to care for his mother-in-law and other family members. Uh, very meaningful to get to talk to him about that and his Christian character behind that. It's a privilege to be back with you all. It's been some time since I've been able to uh, preach to you and worship with you, and so I'm always uh, pleased to have that chance. And it's such a fresh reminder to me of the blessing of Presbyterianism, that we really do belong together um, as different churches, but uh, linked together in our, uh, in our bonds. And so I'm so glad to get to worship with you. Many faces I don't recognize and, and many that are familiar. If you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 27. It's page 460 in your pew Bible. Psalm 27, which is a psalm of David. So this is a psalm that comes in the context of great distress for David. You'll see that very clearly. But you'll also see in the midst of that distress, tremendous hope and confidence on the part of David. Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet will I be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. For He will hide me in His shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of His tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in His tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help. Cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. If you could ask God for one thing, one thing only, what would it be? Allow me to add a variable to that question. If you were living through the most excruciating trial you had ever experienced in your entire life and you could ask God for one thing and one thing only, what would it be? 
David's perspective on this issue was clear. Verse 2, in a context of affliction, evildoers were assailing him, seeking to eat up his very flesh. In a context of abandonment, verse 10, his closest blood relations were forsaking him. In a context of great distress, what did David seek from God? In a word, the one thing David sought from God is God. Verse 4, look with me at that verse which will really serve as the focus for much of what I have to say this morning. The single-minded resolve of David, that man after God's own heart. He says, one thing have I asked of the Lord. That will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. In a context of great trial, David's deepest longing was not even immediate relief from pain. What he desired above all else was to be in the presence of of His Lord. It's what church history has often referred to as communion with God. Fellowship with God. The Christian's prayer closet in his devotion to his God through Jesus Christ. And this single-minded resolve, it's amazing to note, didn't even start with David here in our passage. It actually started with God. Look with me at verse 8. God said to David, Seek my face. And David's heart said in response, Your face, Lord, do I seek. This is Old Testament David being graciously summoned into God's presence, unfettered access to the throne room of Almighty God. As it were, his God is saying to him, I love you, David. My face is not the face of an angry judge against your sin, but it is the kind face of a father. It is the face of a true and tender friend. Psalm 25, verse 14, another psalm of David. We're told the secret counsel or the intimate fellowship of the Lord is with those who fear Him. He makes known to them His covenant. Isn't that wonderful news? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, oh, how deeply the Father loves you, even this moment as you worship Him this hour. You are, Psalm 17, verse 8, the apple of the Lord's eye. You are, Psalm 16, 3, among His people in whom is all the Lord's delight. Or verse 1 of our passage, the Lord is your light. He is your salvation if you belong to Jesus Christ. I don't know what specific trial you all are facing this morning. Perhaps you are here in the midst of the worst trial you have ever experienced in your entire life. As you are face to face with that very real trial, your Father is saying to you this moment, Seek My face. 
Be face to face with Me, your God. The Father initiated communion with David, and so the one thing which David asked for, God was abundantly willing to give. Intimate, sublime fellowship with Himself in the deepest recesses of David's soul. And that is true for you as you come to Him through the Mediator this morning as well. I hope you can see from our psalm there really is no higher privilege for human beings created in God's image than that. We were made for this intimate fellowship with God which we forfeited back on that dreadful day in the garden. And through the sovereign grace of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, that fellowship is restored. And you can experience it. This same confidence that belonged to David in the Old Covenant is yours today by grace through faith. I want to consider just for a moment the heart of communion with God. What is communion with God all about? And then I want us to conclude by looking at the structure of that communion. David wanted to be in the house of the Lord because there dwelt his heart's deepest treasure. David's deepest delight. Yes, I mentioned this psalm comes in the context of affliction, but at the same time, did you capture how positive this psalm is? How optimistic this psalm is? David wanted to be in the house of the Lord. Why? So that he could gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. The Lord, His God, His Savior was beautiful to David. Or it could be translated, the pleasantness, the kindness, the delightfulness of the Lord. So be careful not to misunderstand David. It was not the beauty of God's house per se that was attracted to him. Certainly that would have been beautiful to be sure. It was the beauty of God Himself. His delightfulness. His pleasantness that was so attractive to David. So that begs a question of us, doesn't it? Is the Lord beautiful to you? Is the contemplation of His presence pleasant? Is His face a delightful thing in your mind's eye? He is beautiful. The question is, have we been given eyes to see something of His gracious, pleasant, beautiful face. Do you set aside time to be with the Lord, even in the midst of those deep and dark trials, setting aside time to encounter Him in His Word? (coughs) In our worship service this morning, has He captured your affections? Has He brought you delight to know that you, a sinner, can be in the inner chamber of this Almighty God. <coughs> There's a quote by a man named Gerhardus Voss. It's one of my favorite quotes of all time. He puts it this way. The true child will instinctively turn to the presence and smile of its parents as a flower will seek the face of the sun.
And in the same way, the true child of God will have moments in which he turns to his Father in heaven, unconscious of any desire than the desire to be near unto God. A child in its father's lap, simply sitting in the glowing presence of his father because he's his father, not to have any other need met at that present time. Psalm 42, verse 1, very similar. You probably know this this verse. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for You, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with my God? Psalm 63, another Psalm of David, verse 1. O God, You are my God. Earnestly I seek You. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh faints for You as in a dry and weary land where there is no water because Your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise You. Everything, and I mean everything, is like a dry, parched desert land for the psalmist when compared to being in the presence of His Almighty Creator, Redeemer, Sustaining God. Should we as God's people thank our God for the gifts He provides for us? Absolutely we should. That is a biblical mandate. But there's something deeper than gratitude for the gifts that God has given David that ultimately moves David here in our psalm. It is not the gifts of his father that first and foremost move David. It is the fact that this glorious, holy, eternal God is his father that David cannot begin to get over and that moves him to devotional delight. And that's what could cause him this confident calmness in the face of a brewing, roaring storm that was all around him. Children, David was a biblical mathematician. And I pray that as you leave here this morning, you will do biblical math as well. The beautiful face of the Lord plus nothing equals everything for the believer. Whereas everything in the world and all its accoutrements minus God's presence equals less than nothing for the regenerate heart. For the heart that has been given faith in Jesus Christ. Again, remember our context. Verse 2, David's enemies were attacking him. They threatened his very life. Verse 10, his own family abandoning him. And David is saying, yes, this is painful. But all of this, as painful as it is, I can absorb. So long as, verse 9, you, O God, do not hide your face from me. Do not turn me away in anger. Do not, O God, cast me off. Do not forsake me. That is the one thing that I frankly could not bear. And this really helps to explain a phenomenon that some of you may have noticed in the Psalms as you've studied them. 
Several of the psalms you've noticed recoil at the thought of physical death. The psalmist speaks of the horror and the dread and even in fearful language about the reality of physical death. And it is a haunting, intruding reality into God's good world. But can you appreciate that the chief cause of the psalmist's disapproval of death was the thought that death might in any way sever the psalmist from his God? Psalm 6.5 In death, the horror of death is there's no remembrance of you, O God. In Sheol, who will give you praise? Don't rob me of my soul's only hope. Don't rob me of this one thing, the psalmist says. One thing have I asked of the Lord. That will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Now, don't get me wrong. David was a very practical man. Imagine, as the king of Israel, the innumerable list of responsibilities that he had to manage. And he did take care of those responsibilities faithfully. David was not living a monastic or a reclusive sort of lifestyle. But it was David's communion with God which served as the basis for his entire life of service to his God in God's world. Verse 12, you see how practical David is. David prayed for deliverance from his enemies. And that is a very appropriate prayer. But can you see, for David, it was a proportional desire. It was a proportional prayer because it was flowing from a more basic desire, a more basic prayer and commitment for David. Or verse 11, we get a true window into just how much David's communion with God structured all of his practical responsibilities in life. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on the level path. David was praying for grace to obey God's law. He knew that without communion with God in his trial, he knew he would go the way of rebellion. He would become angry, throw in the towel, and in sinful contempt would fall prey to the crooked path that his enemies had fallen prey to as well. And so he prays for God's gracious hand to conform him to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ who would become incarnate and into whose image we are to be conformed in the midst of trial as well. Are you picturing it? The center of David's life was rightly defined and so the other matters of his life properly shaped themselves around that core. But let's think conversely. Had David... Improperly defined his life, had anything else grabbed the center of his life, then it would have all led to disproportion and ultimately to have fallen apart. The center would have become periphery and ultimately completely eclipsed had he not radar locked on that deepest desire of the image bearer's soul. Think about it this way, kids. You can appreciate this if you have a bicycle. You have a bicycle wheel, and what's on it? There's a, there are spokes, and there's a hub. Well, those spokes are very meaningful, like these matters, the practical matters of David's life. But can you see those spokes are meaningful only insofar as they are connected to the hub? And I think we can all agree, hubs make really bad spokes, and spokes 
make really bad hubs. If you built a bicycle wheel that way and you went to ride around your neighborhood, you wouldn't get very far because the entire thing would collapse. And that's how it was for David. You've got to get, we've got to get first things first so that other matters flow properly from it. Let me use a very contemporary example. Politics. Very contemporary in our world, and understandably so. Politics are a very important aspect of the believer's life. Don't let anyone tell you that Christians are to bury their head in the sand or just to abandon this realm. We are to engage it biblically. Uh, a, A godly politician shouldn't be an oxymoron or a contradiction in terms. You should be praying in this church that God would raise up believers who would apply a biblical world and life view to this realm that God has created. But politics must be approached with this Davidic mindset. This one thing. Otherwise, what will happen? We will become unduly concerned, and I can even say to myself, even idolatrously concerned at times, with getting the right person into office. And that begins to be the centerpiece of our life. And what will happen? We might even stoop to sinful tactics to accomplish our ends, or at least to a prayerless anger that drives what we do. Or, if we're not able to accomplish getting that right person into office, what can happen? It can lead to a sinful paralysis if politically things don't go our way. Again, look at David. He is a lot of things in our psalm but idolatrously consumed by or in any way paralyzed by the issues of life that were facing him, he simply is not. And I think we would all have to agree with all of the implications and importance of the political realm in our day and age, the matters that David faced even far outweighed in significance what we face as a culture today. If I had a dollar for every wasted moment in my life that I've spent needlessly rehashing all of the details of perceived injustices in this world toward me and others with whom I may have affinity, I'm ashamed to say I would be a very rich man. And as I've encountered this psalm of David, I've been praying that my life might look more and more like the life of David, that my life might be captivated and driven by this one thing, centerpiece of David's life that it might be mine and yours as well. And so I would say to you as Christians, yes, you should be busy about Christian service. Be busy about Christian activity. But make sure that it is consecrated activity. Make sure it is worshipful activity because it is flowing from the center rather than replacing the center. And don't we all know that one litmus test we can apply to know which one is the case is am I grumbling and complaining and frustrated and angry as I go about it? Or is there a deep abiding devotional joy? Because I know even the most menial of tasks in my life is connected to this hub of the presence of the living God. David sought the beautiful face of the Lord above all things, even in affliction. And he brought this devotional posture to every matter in his life. 
Now, very briefly, the structure of this communion. What did it look like for David? So important to stress, communion with God was a present reality for David in his life, even as an Old Testament saint. He's experiencing real devotion. How much more should it be the case that our lives are shaped by this devotional posture who live on the other side of the cross and resurrection? Who live on the other side of the greater David, Jesus Christ? Communion with God, believers in Christ, is not a pipe dream. It is not something we should relegate to the realm of the mystics as some sort of hallucinatory mode. When you, a believer in Christ, bow before your God, you are bowing in the presence of His beautiful face and it shines upon you like the sun. 1 Corinthians 13.12 Yes, we now see in a mirror dimly, but we really do see by His mercy and grace. Our lives of greater privilege in this area of devotion must express themselves through greater attention to communion and prayer. Now, communion with God for David was present, but it was also a future reality. It was a future hope for David, and the same is true for us. Christ has arrived But the final installment of His arrival is still forthcoming. And so verse 13, a future verse for David, is still future for us as well. That day when we will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Or Psalm 17 verse 5, when Jesus Christ returns, when we will behold God's face in righteousness, in the new heaven and the new earth. Or Matthew 5a, the Beatitudes, Jesus quotes right from the Psalms. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will, future tense, they will see God. 1 Corinthians 13.12 For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then on that future day of Christ's return, face to face. That should move you. That should grip you. That there is a day coming when this centerpiece, this one thing, will no longer be by faith, but by God's almighty grace, will be a by sight reality forever and ever. The sun, until that day, shines brighter for us than it did for David. But you all know as well as I do, that the storm clouds of trial and pain that hovered over David hover over our lives as well. And they can make life so dark, so cold, so perplexing. Pray for biblical vision that pierces through those temporary piercing hardships of this present evil age that behind the storm clouds you might see the radiant face of Almighty God who cares for you and protects you and has promised to usher in that last day in which He and the Lord Jesus Christ will be the sun in the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, and the new earth. It is He who holds all of history in the palm of His hands and has promised to bring His name glory through the good of His people for whom He sent His Son. 2 Corinthians 4.6 You will behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ 
1 John 3.2, you will at last see Him as He is. In your present affliction and trial, will you seek this one thing? Will you repent where necessary of undue preoccupation in life that God might restore that joy of fellowship with Him through the power of His Holy Spirit? It is a privilege, but it is a daunting responsibility at one and the same time. I want to conclude by making just two observations about the greater David. Who better for us to consider on this topic than the one who came to fulfill the promises that David was a mere shadow of? In this matter of devotion with God, Jesus Christ, the greater David, is both our Savior and our example. Now, how is He our Savior? Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, think about this, He beheld the face of His Father from all eternity. And yet He took on human flesh to restore us lost sinners to a place of communion with God. In this matter of communion with God, Jesus Christ is first and foremost our Savior. But, in our communion with God, Jesus Christ is not simply a Savior. He is also our example. Think about His life. In our respect, I don't know you all very well. I know you all live very busy lives. We live in a busy day and time. But I think we can all agree there was no one on the face of the earth who ever lived who was busier than Jesus Christ. No one ever had more pressing claims upon His time. And no one ever endured such hardship and trial in His busyness than the Lord Jesus. And yet regularly in Jesus' earthly ministry, what do we witness? Regularly. He withdraws from the multitude so that He might seek the face of His loving Father whom He's come to serve. So that He might privately commune with His God whom He knows will ultimately abandon Him on that dreadful day to the cross so that we can be saved. And then He brought the fruit of that devotional fellowship to His every practical command, His every practical demand. He gazed upon the beauty of His Father, one thing He desired, and from that secret place of prayer, He spoke confidently and devotionally to a hostile world. In the context of painful pilgrimage in this fallen world, can you say this morning, can you pray for grace that you might say with David, that you might say with Jesus, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Let's pray. O Lord, You are so very beautiful. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what You have in store for us. And yet You have revealed it to us by Your Spirit. O we see Your pleasant bounty. We see Your delightful countenance. We receive the benediction each week in worship knowing 
that the very shining face of our Father accompanies us as we go out into His world. When you come, I come with grief for the disproportionality to my life so often. I pray, O God, that You would restore this central focus for us and that the world might see in our lives as the church of Jesus Christ a fundamental stability in the face of all of the challenges that may come our way. And I pray, O God, if there is anyone in this room who does not yet know Your gracious shining face for salvation, that this very moment Your Spirit would work faith and that that person would see the Lord Jesus Christ shining in His saving radiance for His salvation, for her salvation. We commit all this to You in the precious name of our Redeemer, whom we anticipate seeing face to face with the deepest joy. Amen.